Ladies and gentlemen, this is Paused Reviews. Hey, welcome back one and all to the Pause Reviews podcast. As always, I'm your host, Frank, joined by my trusty co-host, Tim. Welcome, Tim. Oh, yeah. Welcome. Welcome to... My Welcome bond. to hell. So we are kicking off October with a bang, I think. Uh, yeah. Our first deep dive of the month, the first of three, where we're going to tackle sort of a fact or fiction look at some horror movies. And this week it is The Right, starring Anthony <laughs> Hopkins. This was right. tough. Oh, yeah, totally. Been a little unsettled since then. I've watched this movie twice now. I've prayed before each time. I've got like three or four days of research under my belt. I'm either fully damned or I'm like three credits away from actually becoming an exorcist myself. <laughs> right. Like it's right. it's one or the other. All right. Well, we have a lot to cover. Um, oh, yeah. We're trying to do something a little different with these deep dives. And so there's a lot to get into. So we might as well get in quick. Uh, as always, spoiler alert, we are going to spoil the heck out of this movie so if you haven't seen it yet and you want to watch it first go ahead and pause the show now go check it out and then come back also i want to give a bit of a content warning i think for all of the episodes in october i'm gonna go ahead and mark them explicit and that's not because we're gonna be you know dropping bombs or cursing up a storm or doing whatever but i feel like just the content of these shows inherently they're not going to lend themselves to a general audience, right? Like you, it, yeah. we try and pride ourselves on being a podcast that you can have on in the background, no matter who walks in and out of the room. We don't want to be that show that when your kids get home, you got to stop it. But we're going to be talking about some pretty dark stuff over the next couple of episodes. And it's definitely yeah. not something that you want little, little youngins around for. Um, so we're going to mark these episodes explicit and we're going to give you guys at the top, like right now, a warning that, uh, you know, this isn't kind content for everybody especially this one right we're going to be talking about exorcisms and how they're depicted yes in this film and it's all going to be in the context of this film but with that comes conversations also about catholicism christianity religion in general and, and that kind of stuff so if hearing about stuff like that is not something you're about everyone's walk is their own this ain't going to be the episode for you. If you are about that life, but you are not down with hearing about exorcisms, demon possession, uh, and all that kind of stuff, hey, I'm with you. <laughs> I yeah. didn't really want to do this either. But this isn't going to be the episode for you. So tune in for a later one. Check out the back catalog. We've got 25 other episodes uh, ready and waiting for you and more to come this month that will be more your speed. But for now, definitely take this one with caution and mm-hmm. and you know you've you've been warned is basically where i'm getting yeah. at we'll we'll get you back with with the family episodes that we we have some ideas for him so yeah 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 It'll be all right. Absolutely. Um, we need to feel better ourselves. So. <laughs> I, know, I need to. I need to decompress. Uh, I am glad that we're watching this on a Wednesday, so technically October doesn't launch until Thursday, which means I get a couple of days of still posting Instagram stuff that's not horror related. So I feel like I'm going to come down just in time to ruin the rest of my month. Okay, so where to watch this one? This one for now is only available for rental or purchase. I 
thought this might come available sometime in October, and maybe it will. But as of right now, it's only for rent or for purchase. I think I bought it. I bought it because it was four ninety nine to buy it on Prime rather than just renting it for three ninety nine. So pay the extra buck. Am I thrilled I own it? No, but here we are. Otherwise, let's jump in. The Right was released in 2011. This one actually hit theaters January 28th of 2011 and is rated PG-13. Don't let the rating fool you. There's still a lot you can do with a PG-13 rating, apparently. Yep. And uh, January 28th, I found that interesting. You know, you would expect a lot of these horror movies to be released around the month of October, but that's not necessarily the case. And especially for this one, this is not a traditional horror. This is more of a drama, suspense type thriller. And so releasing a movie like this in January, February, even as late as March, is kind of the norm simply because, and we've talked about the film schedule, the Hollywood schedule, where your blockbusters come out in the summer, those are your tent poles that basically finance all your losses for the year. And then in the end of the year, those are your award contending dramas. And you want those to come out at the end of the year because you want them fresh in the minds of voters. A movie that releases in January, no one's going to remember it in February of the following year when it comes to Oscar time. So those tend to drop in the holiday seasons. Also, too, families are home. People go to the movies a lot. So you have a better shot of getting people to go and see them. January, February, March is kind of dead time. So this movie came out in a time where it wasn't really theoretically competing with much of anything and so horror is the top film genre in the United States so you're really stacking cards that a even though it's not Halloween people always love watching a horror movie b there's nothing else out right now c people are still kind of in the lull you know the the seasonal effectiveness is in everything is sort of ripe for you know going to just go see a movie and uh, and why not go see this one that being said though the right didn't do that great on a budget of $37 million, it only brought in $96.5 million. And again, like we've talked about, that kind of only covers the, the cost. This mm-hmm. movie didn't really bring in much profit. So if we're rounding up to about a $40 million budget, you've got to clear $80 million just to make your money back. And yeah. so, you know, this movie maybe, maybe brings in 15 to $20 million in profit, which is at least something, but it's not a huge success, which was kind of surprising to me. Yeah, I was definitely expecting a little bit more. With Voodoo, you get uh, access to like some of the brief Rotten Tomato scores and some of the critic stuff, and there were definitely more negatives on this uh, yeah. than positive, and I just kind of read the little clip that they gave you, and I was actually pretty surprised. I was uh, They were very tepid and bland. Yeah, I mean, Rotten Tomatoes, it has a critic score of 21 and an audience score of 40. IMDb, it's like 6 out of 10. Now, Google, which is all user-based, those are user-based ratings, this movie does carry an 88%. 88% of viewers liked it. So... This is one of those, I think it, and we'll, we'll talk about this in the end, but this is one that definitely, it, it depends on the viewer, and, and this is very much for a targeted audience, and if you aren't among that demo that is going to actually find this scary, you're going to be a total 
to- on the total end, opposite end of the spectrum. This will play bland and boring and, you know, just not exciting. Yep. And I think, um, you know, you and I have said briefly and kind of doing our research for this and the rest of the month, and even I think it's sort of implied with the idea of horror movies always selling, is that I don't think a lot of people go into a horror movie very critically. Um, So when you get a really well-made horror movie, um, a lot of time people say, oh, it's such a good movie. And then you see it and you're like, "Mm, wasn't (laughs) a good movie. But they're looking for the horror elements, the jump scares, that feeling that they get from it. So it might have tickled all those bells and whistles for them, but it wasn't a good movie. (laughs) Right, right, right. So, And this one's definitely a thinker. So it's not going to give you those... Yeah, so this would come in on that opposite end. So if you went in looking for that, you know, horror, horror movie and you got this, I could see where you end up with that kind of negative rating from that those elements. Yeah, absolutely. So The Right was directed by Mikhail Hafstrom. He directed 1408, uh, the movie Derailed, and he did several episodes of the Netflix show Bloodline. Hmm. And the movie was written by Michael Petroni, who also wrote Possession... Chronicles of Narnia, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and the horrific film sequel to (laughs) the amazing Interview with the Vampire, Queen of the Damned. So, you know, these guys have experience in the horror genre, in the suspense genre, so it makes sense why this team would be trusted with this material. Yeah, it seems on par. So what's this one about? A real brief synopsis and a quick overview of the real-life basis for this movie. Because again, keeping in mind that we are looking in the deep dives at movies based on true stories and Mm -hmm. sort of what is fact and what's fiction, right? So The Right tells the story of a young seminarian named Michael Kovac, played in the film by Colin O'Donohue, which this was actually his feature film debut. He had done some TV shows. He had done some made-for-TV films films or movies but he had never been in a feature film before and he has a pretty strong outing in this one yeah it's a pretty heavy material too right so michael kovac he's a young guy a young seminarian who's having a crisis of faith and is sent to rome to study the rite of exorcism The movie is based on the book, The Right, The Making of a Modern Exorcist, which is written by Matt Baglio, and it chronicles the experience of an American priest named Father Gary Thomas as he undergoes the exorcism training in Italy. So out the gate, we do see that this is fact-based, but there's definitely some licenses, and we'll break those down in a little bit. Jumping into some of the sort of trivia behind this and and just, you know, things that are good to know as we dive into this film further, director Mikko Havstrom attended several exorcisms in preparation for the film. Now, he was not allowed to witness them, but he was able to hear what was being said from outside the room. That is frightening on many levels. Number one, oh, God, do yeah. we just let... <laughs> Do do Catholics just let, like, anyone who wants to watch one? I mean, obviously, he didn't get to watch it, but, like, yeah, come sit in this chair. Do you even want to be in that house? Like, Hey, man, listen to this. Like, uh, I I think listening would be worse than seeing it. I um, 
Uh, now, and my understanding too is that the exorcisms are always performed in the church. But even still, like that's not where I'm trying to be. Like, hey, man, yeah. you come sit in this chair in this other room. Horrific demons are going to be exorcised. But uh, yeah, man, come check it out. Now, additionally, Hastrum also asked both Father Gary Thomas and Matt Baglio to serve as consultants on the film. This just shows that the production team was really dedicated to presenting the rite of exorcism as accurately as possible. And while many creative licenses were taken in the film's narrative, Father Gary Thomas has praised the film for its accurate depictions of the rite itself. Uh, And that's key because, again, it's horrifying. Yep. <laughs> this, this movie also introduces viewers to the idea of many demons exerting their will on humans, each of them with their own name. This becomes key as we find that demons are expelled by finding out the name of the demon and then by name commanding it out. And so in the purposes of this film, we're following one particular demon named ball so we want to give a little bit of background into this demon just to kind of give context to the film and just how severe this is in the bible ball isn't referred to as a demon per se instead ball is the pagan god of the canaanites who's later also worshipped by many israelites now this becomes a problem obviously because god's biggest deal is don't worship other gods other than me and so ball is a huge huge nemesis but it's not ball itself it's more that pagan worship so one of the key stories of ball and his worshipers is actually found in the book first kings where the lone standing prophet of god elijah sets up a demonstration between god and ball on mount carmel in front of all of Israel. If you haven't heard this story, it's actually really, really powerful and really fascinating. Mm -hmm. Uh, Basically, Elijah tells all the worshipers of Baal and the prophets of Baal, which are like 450 guys versus him. He says, bring us two calves. You try to get Baal to light one on fire, and I'll ask my God to light the other one on fire, and whoever does it first wins. The worshipers of Baal spend all day trying to make it happen. It doesn't. Elijah soaks his calf in water, like gallons upon 12 gallons of water. He fills a trough of water. Basically, this thing is not lighting. Says one simple prayer, boom, up in flames, and thereby proving that his is, you know, the true God. And then more crazy stuff (laughs) happens. Um, But that is like the most detailed account that we get of Baal. And again, not a demon. So looking, and in the Old Testament, there's really not a lot of mentions of demons. It's not something that they really focused a lot on. Now, in the New Testament, there's a few times where we do see demons driven out, but only one time is one named. And that's when Jesus, I think it's in the book of Luke, Jesus casts out a demon from a man just outside of Galilee, and Christ demands the demon's name, and it's given as legion because the man is possessed by many demons. So even though there's no scriptural finding for Baal himself as a demon, the name has been accepted by many Christians as the chief lieutenant of Satan. And while the pagan god of Baal was commonly depicted as a bull or ram, the demon Baal is often depicted as a man, a frog, a cat, or some combination of all three. Don't Google those images. They will haunt your dreams. And I feel like that is a a bit of a common thing, um, especially as you know, Christianity was getting established, you see the use of other deities 
as a now negative figure. Yes. So in this yes. case, you know, Baal was a god worshipped by somebody else, but now Christianity is going to say, oh, no, no, that, that, you know. So you see those names adapted unofficially. <laughs> Absolutely right. Names are then attributed. And also, yeah. too, because they, they immediately call that negative connotation. This is a bad thing. We're going to call it something that we know is also bad so that you know and and that's sort of what those stories in particular in the bible is all about it's about educating people in a way that they can readily uh understand and accept and and so it makes sense that we would see that type of repetition yep so why is all of this important to the movie right so (laughs) coming back around to the movie we watched a movie guys this is all a movie So we're shown from the very beginning in the movie The Right that we are dealing with the demon ball as Father Lucas's home is literally infested with frogs and cats. And, you know, as I said, one of the depictions of ball in sort of that Christianity or just lore in general. Yeah. And one of the first things Father Lucas says to Michael as he enters the house is to make sure none of them get in. Right. And so I just thought this was kind of cool because the cats immediately follow Lucas through the open door and Michael's running after them, chase him back out. And to me, this really read after doing some of this research as awesome symbolism and awesome thematic metaphor. As we see the very symbols of the demon ball entering through the door open to them by Father Lucas, obviously symbolic of, you know, Father Lucas's opening of a spiritual door to the demon later in the film when he himself becomes possessed and and also kind of we've talked about this showing the ending at the beginning this is kind of playing out right before us without us even knowing what we're seeing but if you sort of have that context in the back of your mind maybe you can watch scenes like this a little bit differently right You know, there's actually a lot in this scene in particular that you can dive into once you have sort of this foundation. You know, he has a whole line, right? When when Father Lucas meets Michael for the first time and he says, Welcome to Rome. It's infested with cats. I've tried giving them names, but it's pointless. A cat won't come no matter what you call it. They do as they please. And like I said, we learn that you cast out demons by finding out their names and casting them out. He's saying Rome is infested with cats. He can't figure out their names. It doesn't matter. It's pointless. They do what they want, right? Are we still talking about cats or are we talking about demons? And and there's just, there's a lot of meat there that you can really dive into. And if nothing else, it's at least interesting. There are frogs and cats all over my house, and I'm sort of terrified now. Yeah, bro, you're screwed. I mean, you got like (laughs) two in there, don't you? One cat is mine, but we have two neighborhood cats and a bunch of tree frogs every summer. So, no, no, (laughs) no. Never going to Tim's house. This also makes very clear uh, what we're dealing with in the movie, right? This is no little thing. This is Satan's top lieutenant, one of the worst demons. So this background really sets the groundwork, not only for all this interesting conversation and, and sort of diving into the themes and metaphors, but also for just how severe, how nasty the possession itself in this film is. Like, yeah. this is no small guy. This is yep. the big guy. And then lastly, it really shows the amount of detail and work that went into crafting this fictionalized retelling of these actual events in a very accurate and careful way which is so key when you're making a movie like this 
Yeah, and and really to all of that, uh, I think it's important that we kind of just point out that we are we're dealing specifically in this movie with the idea of of a Catholic exorcism. You can look at exorcism. There are ideas in in every culture, every major religion about what that looks like. But specifically in this movie, we're talking about the right as the Catholic right of exorcism. Usually this, so a little background for this, usually an exorcism um, is performed in the Catholic Church in the name of Jesus. This is a big kind of important distinction because there are essentially two types of, uh, of exorcisms. There's a formal exorcism, otherwise known as a solemn exorcism, which can only be uh, conducted by a priest or an ordained priest. And these happen during baptism or with the permission of a bishop. Otherwise, there are prayers of deliverance, which can be said by anybody. So we're talking like maybe a little bit of a lesser possession, which there are some names for, which we'll get into a little bit later. The Catholic rite of formal exorcism is actually like written out there are sections, rules um, in what they call the Ritual Romanum. There are lists of guidelines for conducting one and for even determining if a formal exorcism is required, which is actually plays into this movie is that priests are instructed uh, to carefully determine the nature of the affliction. They want to really rule out whether it's a psychological or phil- um, you know, physical issue before we go any further in this process. Um, something that Father uh, Thomas talks about, um, you know, his diocese, um, has a whole team of people, including a doctor and a psychologist and two priests that determine if this is even necessary. And we we will see that, at least in the United States, they're not that common, exorcisms. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a fairly rare thing. In the Catholic practice, you have your person doing the exorcism known as the exorcist, and they are an ordained priest. They usually use prayers from the rite as laid out, um, and they will use other materials such as icons, sacraments, for relics. We see oil, um, and we see crucifixes, um, and we hear both priests in this movie invoke the name uh, of God, um, specifically Jesus, um, but they will use other um, icons as well. I think we see him call on the Virgin Mary, um, but it's also not uncommon to see um, the Archangel Michael called to intervene uh, in an exorcism as Michael is kind of seen as the slayer of Satan. According to the Catholic understanding, uh, there is kind of generally accepted that several weekly exorcism over many years could be required to really expel an entrenched demon. So we see that kind of play out, especially with um, the first major case in this, in this movie, that they kind of have weekly appointments to kind of push this out. Yeah, absolutely. This is not a one and done as we've kind of seen in other, in your typical exorcism films of Mm -hmm. just shock value and that is key to this movie because this movie is very different and this at least cursory general understanding of what has gone into this because we are looking at this this is based on a true story on a or rather this is based on a book written by a journalist who actually attended this course and met priests who were being trained to perform these rites so it is all through this lens as you watch this movie so perhaps if you if you didn't find it overly terrifying at first maybe with a little (laughs) bit of background some different things will start to click as you watch it as it certainly did for me and tim i think i can speak for you as well both of us having been raised in the catholic faith christians now but this was a concept we were we went into it being familiar with Yes, absolutely. Um, And if you know nothing about the Catholic Church, ritualistic is, you know, the church by definition. So the fact that all of this is spelled out specifically 
should kind of also indicate how serious this actually is taken, whether the church wants to admit its seriousness or not. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. So with all that background context in hand, let's take a look at the film itself and start to kind of dive into how is this constructed, what is playing out, and just generally as a horror movie, is this good or isn't it? And also taking a look and comparing it to the true story and seeing just how close it comes. So we are immediately introduced to our protagonist, a man named Michael Kovac. Now, Michael is a young mortician working in his father's funeral home. He's troubled by a super complicated past and, uh, and is a man of little to no faith. This is all kind of made clear in just the first couple minutes. Now, this is one of the first elements, though, that I could have used a little bit more of, right? Like, we're shown that Michael has a disturbing past, you know, being introduced to death and even desensitized to it at a very young age. He even, you know, as he watches his father work, we also learn that he watched his father tending to his mother's dead body as a young boy, mm-hmm. which felt troubling to me, right? Like, yeah. like so almost like a conflict of interest type thing. Like, if you're the husband, even if you are a mortician wouldn't you have someone else come do that i don't know yeah it's troubling and it kind of sets that tension at the very beginning right it's kind of just that tension note now all of this plays out pretty well and i like that there isn't a lot of time wasted diving into the backstory however i still would have liked a little more insight into the relationship between michael and his father we all assume it isn't a happy one but that's really only shown through absence. And I felt like there's just a little bit missing there, just a minute or two, you know, before he heads off to the seminary to like really drive home that conflict between the two of them, because that's yeah. clearly resentment or whatever is really what's fueling Michael and his descent from the faith and, and all this kind of stuff. And, and I felt like that, that motivation of his was missing in this movie that that why is he so against this yet continues to sort of entrench himself in this life yeah i mean that would kind of shed a little bit more light on this bright idea of his to join the (laughs) seminary because it sort of feels a bit you know a little out of left field i think for the reasons that you're mentioning right um but it, it ultimately it's just a, it's it's just a quick way to to get out of town for him to get away from his father uh, maybe um, and seemingly maybe earn a degree uh, free maybe he thinks I, I don't know um, his research is really <laughs> explaining to him that you know it's a four year degree before he has to do anything so it's like you know taking pre med before you ever become a doctor right you get a four year <laughs> degree and um, you know you don't have to make any commitments um, so I, I guess he assumes he'll get it for free um, and then quit before. Or he you know really vows his celibacy <laughs> <laughs> yeah well and that's what gets me right like how is anyone looking into this you know like it says he's like done his re- i think he says that right he's like yeah. i did my research and blah 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 if you really looked into it how would you think that plan would actually work nothing is free it's the same as a military academy right like yeah, yeah. you get the ed- education in exchange for years of service so right. i had an issue with that also from the start because 
it is something that will plague this character for me for the rest of the film because it just mm-hmm. seemed like a stupid moment. And yeah. we do get a quick random blurb about how everyone in his family is either a mortician or a priest. Again, it's like a one throwaway line. So that you would think that with that much exposure, he would at least somewhat have a better understanding uh, that this is not a good plan. Yeah, I mean, because just to get to the point where he ends up you know, where the real story takes off, you know, he's almost going to be ordained as a, as a deacon, I think, at this point, right? He's completed his four yeah, years. Yeah, that's like phase and, one. Yeah. He would have had to be pretty disingenuous about this part of his his studies, right? Like, Well, there's also a line, Toby Jones plays like his advisor, his yeah. the priest at the school, and he's like, hey, you aced art history, and you aced, like, he leads us to believe he's a straight-A student. He goes, so yeah. what happened with theology? It feels like you flunked it on purpose. And it's like he's trying to tank himself out of, like he wants to get kicked out so that he yeah. doesn't have to do it. But yeah. again, it's just it's all just surface level exposition that doesn't really give any foundation and instead just makes Michael out to kind of be an idiot for the rest of the movie. Yeah. I mean, you're going to, we see him in robes at one point, you know, they're in this chapel doing this little ceremony Mm -hmm. and like, you don't at any point feel a little like you're not pulling one over, but yeah, you know what I mean? Like that just, I would feel gross about it. Right. Right. (laughs) I guess that is kind of the point with him, but it does make his character unbelievable. And this, this, I don't know, this, just this blind descent, this unwillingness to, to just accept any of it, you know, even though you've sent yourself to a seminary, it just feels very weird that his whole thing is like, I'll just go pretend to be a priest for a little bit and then blah, blah, blah. Well, and then I guess from there it gets a little weirder, right? Because, you know, Michael ends up sending his letter of resignation and immediately his advisor pulls him aside and kind of informs him what we already know uh, is that if he quits, he's got to pay $100,000 for the four <laughs> right. years of schooling. Right. You know, so he, he doesn't really get an out. Um, but in the same conversation, they throw this kind of little curveball in there um, and his advisor starts telling him like how the Catholic church and specifically John Paul II is, is looking to kind of reamp up the exorcism program and that they want an, an exorcist in every diocese. So apparently like you're talking about, he thinks Toby Jones thinks that Michael is going to be the guy for the job. Like, is that what I'm <laughs> supposed to believe? Right. And, and tells him to go to Rome to take an exorcism class before deciding what he wants to do. Essentially implying like if you st- get back and you still want to quit, then we'll let you go without converting your uh, scholarship into a loan. But again, this guy just told you he doesn't want to be a deacon. And you've yeah. got all your work cut out for you to try to convince this kid to stick it out and and become a priest. So your approach is to have him go and learn to be an exorcist? Like, this really just feels like an insane leap in the first minutes of this movie. Right. But somehow it works, and Michael is now, boom, off to Rome to learn the rite of exorcism? I don't, I don't know. Okay, all right. I, I honestly figured that that would be the last person that you would want to send. <laughs> right. like, I would have one because, of your cats do it before I'd have right. this guy do it. 
I've just always assumed that like the last person you want doing or being around a demon in an exorcism is somebody who is having a crisis of faith. And we're not even sure that this guy is having a crisis of faith because we're not sure he had much of a faith to begin. Fact. You know, there's a scene really early in the movie where um, there's a car accident and this woman is hit by a bus and she's bleeding and uh, it, she wants prayer and he struggles with that and you can tell he doesn't believe the words he's saying and he's called out on it and he's like i don't believe anything i was saying i was just reciting prayer so that's the last person i want to send to learn about exorcism because they that is just a ripe soul for the picking with his doubts and complete directions right which and again to have like an experienced priest to think that this is the way to convince him <laughs> i mean i don't know it, it seems it seems out there but nonetheless now we're in rome and michael is laying the skepticism on thick to anyone who's gonna listen and yeah. is soon sent to shadow father lucas uh, played by anthony hopkins played brilliantly by mm-hmm. anthony hopkins with the hopes that witnessing the right in action will help michael resolve his conflict of faith honestly i can't say enough about hopkins in this role he is seriously one of the best to ever do it i totally buy him as this priest who seemingly doesn't care rough around the edges but is in reality, fully devoted to the faith and totally loving and kind to the people he is helping. I feel like I kind of knew priests like this and Absolutely. and he just, every line he delivers with perfection. Yeah, you and I talked about it. We've had a, a very, as we've you know come to discover, a very similar upbringing. Absolutely. I mean, I feel like I knew him. I knew a priest of his ilk, not the exorcism part, but you know, just that, that just kind of. Yeah, that you never grizzled. went on any Roman retreats to learn the rite no, of exorcism I, as I a doubting child. <laughs> <laughs> nope, but feel like I missed out. Um, <laughs> but I mean, he really does. He plays the grizzled. I've seen it all character that I expected, but also you know for somebody who is so deep into this right he doesn't come off as a priest necessarily in any other way like he's always got his collar undone he's got to button it back up when somebody comes to the door sort of thing oh i totally Um, knew a priest like that absolutely 100 percent um but also this role just gives anthony hopkins room to flex i mean culminating in the third act with the possession scene i mean i just love that i think i mentioned it last week in the rewind with mark hamill in um in the killing joke you just get room to flex he's he plays some different characters and there's such emotion that that anthony hopkins um can put into the various stages of this character it's just a great work for sure the introduction of anthony hopkins character father lucas into this movie is a turning point for this film this goes from this weird thing that doesn't fully quite make sense and then all of a sudden that goes away and you don't really care how michael got here now you are so captivated by father lucas and anthony hopkins in that role and everyone else that we meet from here on out really starts to sell this and it starts Mm -hmm. to really turn into something fascinating but also deeply deeply troubling and terrifying so with that what we see next are three possessions at varying degrees right so Mm -hmm. we see rosaria vincenzo and finally father lucas himself and uh, these are all equally disturbing in their ways but we we first start off with rosaria She's young and pregnant. Uh, She's brought there by her mom or her aunt. Her aunt, yeah. Her aunt. She is 
possessed. We see that um, Father Lucas has been treating her for some time. As mentioned earlier, this is kind of a standard in the Catholic rite that it's going to take some time. They obviously have an extended relationship. They bring him um, some food, um, and this seems they seem fairly comfortable with him. Um, so they, we establish that they've been kind of getting together for a while to do this um, this rite. And just to chime in, too, there's another really small moment, but it's just perfect delivery showing Hopkins' greatness. I'm telling you, I'm not going to let up on it. He's explaining to Michael, right, this is their first meeting. The first time we meet Rosaria is also the first time that Michael and Father Lucas have met. And they're, they're having their exchange, kind of feeling each other out. And he's explaining to Michael that he's arranged for him to meet Rosaria. And she immediately knocks on the door and he says, ah, speak of the devil. And Michael just rolls his eyes and smirks. Now, this moment is so freaking good. And it feels like yeah. such a real exchange. But it's also like a much welcome moment of levity that relieves some of this building tension as we've been waiting for this first look at the horrors we've been promised. And it hasn't delivered mm-hmm. just yet. But also, too, I do want to point out that as good as Anthony Hopkins is in this... The negative things I've said so far about Michael are specific to the character written as Michael, right? Because Colin Donahue, or Colin O'Donohue, is awesome in this Mm -hmm. and equally powerful in this moment. I fully buy him as this sort of like shrug it off doubting Thomas. And it is, it's, it's amazing. The chemistry between these two, especially considering that O'Donohue is a first time film actor and he is acting with one of the best. There's never a sense of, you know, this imposing figure, they fall into step and they really are a dynamic team in this movie that are fully captivating and really carry us through what's coming. Yeah, absolutely. And as we get into it here, we we really do, we jump right into the right. <laughs> We're, um, and I think the story does a, a good way of weaving this in, right? We're not going to go bullet point for bullet point, but we see things that are important to the ritual and that will come into play in the third act with the final um, the, the final exorcism um, and possession of Father Lucas. Um, but Father Lucas grants Michael absolution and has him come assist. Um, he's kind of really nonchalant about what's going to happen at this point. So true. Um, Again, we're yeah, just seeing Michael like thrown into the deep end. <laughs> yeah, I, he um, explains to him. He's like, oh, if she gets kind of crazy, you're going to need to hold her down. But hold her down in this way sort of thing. And Michael's like, uh, all right. So this is the the really, I guess, his first attempt to kind of cure his skepticism. And to prove the possession, he's asking Michael to place an object from his pocket in a bag and then has Rosaria tell Michael what it is that he has on his person. One of these ideas in uh, kind of the deduction of a possession is that is the idea of the unknown, is that the possessed person can know or obtain knowledge that they themselves should have no idea knowing. So that's kind of one of the check marks that we see, you know, that a council or, or, you know, one of these teams that we mentioned before would be looking at is this kind of knowing of the unknown. So he proves to Michael right away, this first kind of bout with this is that like, she can guess what is in your bag. So this dollar bill. 
Right, but of course, like, this means nothing to Michael. And in fact, Michael witnesses all kinds of crazy during the scenes with Rosaria, in particular, right? She's speaking in languages that she didn't know. She's contorting her body in ways that she shouldn't be able to. You just mentioned the knowledge of the unknown. Her voice changes constantly. She even coughs up three nails at one point. And still, Michael never buys in and thinks that he can just explain everything away. However, and that's going to come into play in a minute, but for me, this is also where things really start to get creepy and trigger that fear center, and Mm -hmm. and that's, there's nothing overly crazy about this first round with Rosaria, right? right? She reluctantly guesses correctly that Michael has a dollar bill in his bag, she speaks angrily and reacts violently to holy water, but otherwise, she just gets a little riled up and then calms down and that's it. But somehow this film succeeds in just hitting me in my core. And and it's exactly that simple moment that is the creepiest. It isn't over the top. It isn't insane. It is subtle. And the evil is just lurking right below the surface, Mm -hmm. which means that it's even harder to explain, harder to know and identify. Any of us could have it and never know it. And that is the that's the beginning of those haunting moments of this movie. Oh, absolutely. And that subtlety is truly key, especially still at this point in the story, you know, with Michael still doubting, you know, that the dollar trick uh, didn't really do anything. Um, And he's still he's arguing up through, I think, when he goes back to the um, the seminar series with um, Father Xavier, that rosaria needs a shrink like he says multiple times he's like no she doesn't need she needs a doctor like a real doctor and so i think even up to this point this possession needs to walk this line so only really we can play it from two ends like it needs to just be in line enough that we're like what happened was a little but it's not over the top because mm-hmm. at this point only an experienced exorcist or a fraud, right, would kind of be playing at this at this moment. And it plays into Michael's doubting still, because nothing crazy over the top that couldn't necessarily be explained away has happened yet. Except maybe the nails. <laughs> and it gives us, the viewer, room to grow with the movie too, right? Like, there's going to be a natural escalation as we work our way yeah. through the second act and into the third act. We need to see deeper pitfalls and deeper obstacles and things to overcome. And so, not coming out the gate at a full sprint gives right. us a little bit of time to build that tension and work up. So all of these things make perfect sense, not only in the context of the right, but also just in general filmmaking the one criticism i have in this scene is that father lucas is praying over rosaria and in the middle of the prayer while rosaria is like legit in the throes of her possession fit father lucas stops and takes a phone call like someone calls his cell phone and he's like oh excuse and he's he's like hey i'm in the middle of something and we get subtitles for the call and he had a, a ringtone, right? His ring It wasn't like a normal phone ringing. It was like a music tone, I think. Too. Yeah, maybe. I didn't, I didn't pay I that much attention. I don't remember what it was, but it was enough where I was like, is that her phone? Is that yes. a phone here? Like, it, yes. it wasn't, 
It wasn't what I would have expected his phone well, to ring for. But not only that, you wouldn't expect a phone to <laughs> ring in the middle. So you're thinking, I'm with you. I'm like, whose phone is that? Fully right. like, is Alyssa here? You know, right. it, it didn't right. make sense in the context of the movie. And seriously, like what priest would do that? Like, would you even have a phone with you when you're performing an exorcism? The part made no sense. We got subtitles for his side of the conversation and he's having like Michael you know haphazardly saying some of the prayer yeah, yeah but other than that like it never pays off down the line or otherwise and it just fully pulled me out of the scene i hated yeah. that moment and why it's in there i'll never understand no uh, i don't know yeah so as as we mentioned this is really just their initial session things aren't over (laughs) you know we haven't we haven't gotten the name of the demon which you know that's something we're going to be working towards we don't know Um, who just called father lucas we we got to figure that out right (laughs) um but michael and father lucas meet with rosaria again and this is after michael finds a bracelet that rosaria was wearing during the exorcism and was hanging from his bedroom door Mm -hmm. the creepy is following him now yeah, it's, you know, not it just kind of shows up. Now, they tussled a little bit, but, you know, why would it be on his door? Like, maybe if it was in his pocket, like, uh, but it's on his door. So that's that's key creepy right there. But with each of these sessions, we're getting a stronger demon and the demon acts out more violently. And so kind of crescendoing with uh, what we said before, we're kind of working up to this. But it is especially violent towards Michael, as we would expect, because he's kind of the doubting Thomas. He's the vulnerable one in this. But we get more information about Rosaria and, you know, the fact that um, she being pregnant is the, the baby is a product of her being raped by her father. So we're still walking that line a little bit now. You know, Michael is still not convinced. Obviously, this bracelet's a little creepy, but he's also pretty sure that she's suffering pretty hard at the fact that she was raped by her father. And And the bracelet is a gift from her father. Exactly. So now, you know, that that still can play up into some, you know, like post-traumatic stress. But this is also the scene where Rosario coughs up the, the nails that we mentioned earlier. And Michael still remains unfazed by this and is still skeptical. But honestly, that seals the deal for me. I mean, I like a lot of weird stuff. I have some familiarity with, you know, some sideshow stuff. Like, I've watched a lot of stuff about sideshows. And what you would call a blockhead routine, you know, a sword swallower or somebody that, you know, puts a nail in their nose. That's not taken lightly. So if somebody was to cough up like three or four rusty old style nails in front of me, that's hardcore. I'm that, no, <laughs> done. Because that does not happen lightly. <laughs> it's. I mean, I'm completely with you. And you're absolutely right. Like with, with every moment that maybe starts to further the case for possession – there's also a moment that makes it possible that it isn't, right? And it keeps yeah. us in that guessing game and keeps that conflict within us, the viewer. And it's just, I don't know, it's seeming, it's it's kind of hilariously played out on screen through Michael's skepticism. And, and because you're right, like if any one of us had seen any one of those things, we'd be like, yo, <laughs> like what is happening? Now, yep. the final time we see Rosaria, she's been rushed to the hospital and eventually she, along with the baby, both die. And it seems in this moment that Father Lucas himself suffers his own crisis of faith. Yeah, I mean, this is really set up earlier in the film because 
Um, Michael asks him if he's ever lost anybody. And he did. He lost a young boy once during an exorcism. And that really threw him into a deep depression and caused him to have his own crisis of faith. So like we've said before, we wouldn't send Michael into this situation. But now you have the exorcist having a crisis of faith. And that's just going to open the door for all sorts of issues for, for Father Lucas himself, opening the door for his own eventual possession. Right. And actually, from this point on, Father Lucas is no longer himself. And we soon discover that the demon that was within Rosaria, Ball, has now actually entered Father Lucas. And, you know, there are a few that argue that Father Lucas was actually possessed the entire time. You know, the main supporting point for this is when he tells Michael to take an umbrella before they leave on house calls because it's going to rain. They say that this is knowledge of the unknowable. You know, there's also his demeanor throughout and the fact that he isn't actually successful in exercising any demons during the entire film and even plays down the boy's claims that he's possessed. Vincenzo, who we're going to talk about in a second. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, and and the fact that his house is infested with cats and frogs, all this kind of stuff, leads a lot of this sort of internet buzz that you know, oh, he's actually possessed the entire time. I'm yeah. not really fully sure I buy into this. You know, I totally see the points. I think it's a valid yeah. conversation. But we also see Father Lucas kiss and touch his stole. You know, the the thing that he puts around his neck. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he kisses the Bible and he holds it. He reads from it. He's constantly carrying a rosary and saying prayers. And and you would think that these are all things that he theoretically would not be able to do if possessed yeah i mean all of that is pretty what i would call the clinical signs of a possession you know being the aversion to religious items it's something that's come up a lot and things that i've been listening and reading to um so i don't really think the movie would throw away all of that while choosing to follow source material for other stuff and be like you know just for a gotcha moment like it just that doesn't really add up i mean you there are some dots there but i don't think you're meant to connect those dots in that way at all either right and and to go a little bit further you know just to kind of drive it home is that also once lucas is possessed michael goes back to his room right before discovering that his father is dead and his room is infested with frogs but that doesn't mean that he himself is possessed it's just a sign of all at work right Right. and so so again you know consequently the fact that lucas's house is infested doesn't mean he's possessed you know and additionally there is biblical support for this to be pretty much impossible right because you know when jesus is casting out the legion of demons those around him say that he must actually be possessed in order to command them but jesus says that that a house divided against itself cannot stand basically Mm -hmm. saying that evil cannot combat evil, right? Only God can. And so this is relevant because I feel like you said a movie that has made such an effort to be as accurate as possible, pulled so much from scripture, pulled so much from the source book, pulled so much from the knowledge fountain that is this priest and and the people involved, you know, to make this accurate people making that much effort would not make such a wild assumption um instead i think in this moment his darkest moment father luke is turned away from god and now for the first time the demon has found a doorway in and possessed father lucas with the death of rosaria yeah i mean it's if you were to go down that route with those dots connected i think it just ends up watering down the scene after rosaria's death and the pain and the despair that that father lucas it makes it 
I, again to use the same word disingenuous like then what's the point of him being so distraught i mean because that is the moment where that demon enters him and that demon we know is angry because it's been questioned a, yeah questioned yeah, by michael doubted. And, and, and yeah exactly so yeah I, I just i don't like that because i think it dilutes some of the more powerful moments in the middle of this movie and i would say too that you know if, if you're in the camp where you think this movie is bland and not too scary really settle into those moments especially with rosaria and especially in the hospital scene right <laughs> when when she there's a moment it's almost like a moment of realization for the demon that what he needs to do and she goes from writhing and just looking grotesque to all of a sudden it's almost relief she sleeps and and then it's over and then she's gone suddenly and yeah. it's and it's those those moments are so heart-wrenching and hard to watch and 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 the hope that she must have felt in the mo like it's this is the kind of movie where when you really take in those things that's what brings the real terror right in the moment where you think you're finally safe it's actually the precursor to your worst moment which is and what's coming we there's a bit of a throwaway at this point in the movie that actually stuck with me we don't see much of her demise like we see the blood from her stomach we see kind of the lead up to right. that and then we just see afterwards like they're cleaning out her room the blood stains on the mattress but there is a detective there and yeah. you just kind of hear him in the background say i'm gonna need to talk to everybody who was on staff last night and that to me just means that her body was in some kind of horrific way that what happened to her wouldn't have seemed like a natural occurrence of a pregnancy complication or, or, you know, just hemorrhaging like right. her, something horrible happened to her that they have to have a police investigation into this. Yeah. It's just a throwaway and you will miss it. But that stuck with me. I was like, Oh, that's, that's, that's really interesting. Yeah. There's a back and forth between the detective and the, the doctor. And it absolutely, yeah. you're so right, spot on, that that's exactly what it sort of invokes, is that there is a question here, like, why did this happen, and why does it look like this? Yeah. And and, and even the doctor can't explain it. And and then yep. you counter that with Father Lucas sitting outside just a broken, broken man. It's, mm -hmm. it's insane. This movie is so, so precise. So that wraps up Rosaria, but it brings us to Vincenzo, right? Now, yeah. before we discuss the final possession scene with Father Lucas, we're shown this brief glimpse of another potential possession of a boy named Vincenzo. Yeah, this kind of where we get into this idea that we were we kind of talked about, there's like levels of possession. And this to me feels more like what I have been reading uh, as a demon obsession, where, where the mm. demon is kind of, latched on to you and likes to play with you it likes to torture you but it hasn't taken over you per se yet this varying degree of demonic uh, participation with possession being what we see in rosaria and then um, father lucas um, this definitely feels like on the lesser end of that obsession um, with the demon and rather than the full-on possession that we're, we've been talking about. Father Lucas uh, has Michael join him for what he says are house calls. So this seems like another common thing where he goes to visit these homes, again, with that idea that this could be a long process. Um, 
but uh, they go to visit Vincenzo and his mom. Um, Vincenzo, Vincenzo is having dreams of this red-eyed mule, and he has bites and hoof marks all over his body. Right. Uh, you know. So again, we're uh, on that when line. They show of, that I was like, what? yeah. You know. So now, if you're Michael, still, this is either you know a demon mule, or is this kid being beaten? in a way, right? It's, mm-hmm. We're still on that line. But Father Lucas aggressively questions the boy and his mother. I mean, he, for a priest, he gets pretty downright nasty with them, but all in the vein of trying to make sure that the mother is not beating the child, like like I just you know said could be assumed. Right. When he's finally convinced that, uh, that she isn't beating him and that this is kind of the precursor to maybe a more intense possession, um, he kind of it goes to the boy's bed and he picks up his pillow and he kind of beats the pillow and rips into it. And he finds a frog in the boy's pillow. He takes the, the frog and um, he says, that is, you know, that is the devil. That is what's been troubling his dreams. Um, and he it appears that he goes over to the stove and throws the, the frog in the fire, casts it into the fire to kind of cleanse it. Mm-hmm. But we get back um, to father Lucas's, you know, little compound after these house calls and Michael, uh, picks up his bag, uh, Father Lucas's bag, to bring it in the house, we see that there's a frog in his bag. Right. And, you know, Michael starts to kind of question it again, and he looks around, and he hears other frogs, and he looks in this pond bird bath outside of Father Lucas's house, and it's full of similar-looking amphibians. Um, so again, just kind of walking that line for Michael about, you know, whether or not this is, is really true. But... He, Michael's still just not sold at this point, right? We, and we saw this with um, Rosaria, too, with her death. Um, you know, Michael's just sort of still insinuating. He even says it at one point. He says that it's it's Father um, Lucas's bag of tricks. Like, they're, they're still... Um, he's still not sold. He thinks this, this man is playing some tricks, some sleight of hand, and keeping frogs in his bag. <laughs> yeah, well, and Father Lucas, I think there's even a moment where he even kind of says that he does, and that there are times where he uses a bit of a placebo effect. And, sure. and again, it's it's to really emphasize this varying degrees, right? Because sometimes the cure for these attachments is simply just let them think that it's over, but you need to go to church. You need to practice your faith and that kind of stuff. And and it yes. doesn't involve a whole exorcism. Now, while all of this is interesting, it isn't really creepy, but it does yeah. set up some key information. Michael sees Vincenzo staring at him and whispering to his mother after his father dies. He goes back to Vincenzo's house to ask his mother what her son had been whispering only to find out that Vincenzo had foretold the death. So now we kind of, we have a question, is he possessed? We sort of put that to bed that maybe he isn't. We even see that Father Lucas has sort of played a hand into, you know, saying, oh yeah, you are, but now it's over. Mm-hmm. But the kid does foretell the death of his father. Now, this, along with having his own dream about the red-eyed mule, ends up yeah. being finally the thing that convinces Michael that this may all be real after all. Yeah. And yeah. and while this plays out well, I kind of have a problem with it because this whole time we've watched Rosaria doing crazy stuff right she's saying things to michael that no one could ever know she's calling up things that you know 
that were like the last things that people he saw before going to the seminary said to him and and talking about his mother's death or the bracelet that she wears is identical to the one on the dead woman that he was tending to be like the last body he tended to at the mortuary Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. she spits up nails but to him none of these could even be the slightest hint of possession but yeah. a kid saying that your old ass father is going to die and it happens to come true and suddenly you're fully in? I don't get that. Yeah, that's the least logical jump, right? It's like, right. yeah, I mean, it, that can happen anytime. You're just drawing that conclusion, but not, yeah, again, not the girl spitting up nails. I just, right. Come on. There's a higher chance of this being coincidence than anything else you've witnessed so far. And, and, that's more proof than some random Italian girl telling you deep, intimate things that only you could know and contorting her body and spitting up nails. Uh, I don't know. In the end, Michael confronts the demon dwelling within Father Lucas. He confronts his own metaphorical demons. He accepts the reality of demon possession and of the devil. And then by association, therefore, the existence of God and Jesus. This is what finally gives him the power to successfully get the name of the demon Ball, which that scene of Anthony Hopkins screaming out the name Ball is like, what just happened? And casts him out, saving Father Lucas. And in the end, he goes on to become a priest. So that pretty much sums up what happens in the right. Now, let's just take a look at the fact versus fiction, right? What is this all based on? So all that, <laughs> everything we've just covered and how closely this, you know, kind of fits to the the, the right of Catholic exorcism, mm-hmm. we got to remember that there is source material for this. So, right, we, we talked about the right, the making of a modern exorcist by Matt Baglio. Baglio is an American journalist, and he had settled in Italy with his soon-to-be wife um, around the time that he kind of started getting into this. Uh, He was a semi-practicing Catholic, and he had decided to write an article about the truth behind ancient rite of exorcism. As Frank and I have kind of talked off-screen, off-air, we're familiar. We were familiar with exorcism, but weren't you know? It was sort of that fringier side of our Catholic faith. Right. Like it was not that established. So it, this kind of makes sense. I mean, I would want to explore this um, as you know, this kind of ancient established right, but very little is known about. So Baglio kind of has a pseudo counterpart that we see in this movie to kind of tie in his idea of an investigative journalist. There's an Italian female reporter named Angeline and played by Alice Braga, but she doesn't really do much to move the story along. I struggled with her a a little bit. I did too. Yeah. I thought they could have played her up a little bit more. I thought that her and Michael would have ended up getting a little closer. Right. Romantically, sexually. Using that know, more as like a final temptation. and Yeah. yeah. And, and and that was assumed. Um, and I think the demon, the, the demon ball even kind of calls them out. And yeah. says, oh, aren't you guys having sex? And um, she was fine. I don't know that we needed another sort of devil's advocate <laughs> pardon the pun intended i guess um to kind of play out at this part um but you know, there's a little bit of you know of the writer um, baglio's 
kind of experience in in this character. Um, Baglio did attend class in Rome on the right of exorcism, um, and this is actually where he did meet Gary Thomas, uh, Father Gary Thomas. So this is where things kind of start to to meld together. Right. So as far as there being an American priest sent to Rome to attend an exorcism class where he meets a reporter, that's actually fact. That is yeah. actually what happens. Now, as you mentioned, this priest, Father Gary Thomas, is an American priest and the real-life counterpart to Michael Kovac. However, mm-hmm. there are some major differences between Kovac and Thomas. Thomas was not an early 20s, you know, he was not a skeptic seminarian in his early 20s who was sent to Rome to renew his faith. He was, in fact, an established priest in his 50s who was selected by the bishop to become the exorcist for his diocese in California. His father did not die as a result of demonic premonition. And uh, there was no uh, infestation of frogs uh, <laughs> that um, that you'll see in the movie. Uh, Michael returns back to his room, and uh, it is hopping with frogs. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> I see what you did there. Oh, yeah. Um, furthermore, Father Thomas was not brought to faith um, as a result of witnessing a fatal car accident. We mentioned that earlier uh, in the movie. Michael witnesses this accident and he kind of performs a, a pseudo last rites uh, on the female who is uh, hit by the bus. Ultimately, uh, none of the subjects um, that were witnessed in his apprenticeship for Father Thomas died, and he never witnessed in person uh, any sort of death due to a possession. So, Right, and, and neither Father Thomas nor the priest he apprenticed for, Father Carmine de Philippis, uh, who is the real-life Father Lucas, witnessed a subject spitting up nails. However, this part was based on a story told to Father Thomas by a Franciscan priest who was present when a woman vomited up seven black nails, one of which remained, which he kept, while the other six liquefied and vanished. So it's clear that this story that Father Gary Thomas had heard and was familiar with, maybe he told it to the directors and they Mm -hmm. worked that into the script. So even though that wasn't necessarily in the book or anything that he personally witnessed, it, it clearly made it in and is theoretically based on something on hearsay basically right someone who knows someone saw this thing once now the vatican chief exorcist who trained father carmine also has witnessed the phenomenon of nails being vomited up so there's a lot of exposure to this concept and this idea which is probably how it worked its way in but not something father gary thomas witnessed himself it's actually a really fascinating imagery, regardless of whether or not it has any basis in possibly happening. I mean, nails in and of itself, like I think of crucifix, you know, nails as in, you know, nailing Jesus to the cross. Right. So it's interesting that that would be something that a demon would produce. And then the idea that seven, seven is usually a holy number. Um, and six is usually, you know, you get the 666 marks it, mark of the beast kind of thing. So seven is interesting, but then that six of them disappeared. Right. Um, just that, just that imagery of nails. I, 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 that was really intriguing to me and I'm not sure what, what that all ties together. But as far as Christian or Catholic ideology, especially Catholic iconography, um, nails is kind of a heavy, 
kind of a heavy image for me. No, for sure. Now, additionally, Father Carmine was never possessed by a demon. In fact, Father Thomas notes in the book that full possession is very rare and that the mm-hmm. demon must be invited in, usually through involvement in pagan, satanic, or occult practices. So, again, not something in the movie that was actually based on something that happened in life. Yeah. In fact, one of the um, one of the podcasts that I listened to uh, was an older episode of Stuff You Should Know uh, from about 10 years ago. And they referenced a number that really only one in 5,000 reported possible possessions ends up in an exorcism. So now again, something we haven't really touched on. Um, we also there's a little bit of a difference between where this movie is set in Rome and kind of the old world ideology for demons versus maybe the new world of America and our idea. We're a little maybe less susceptible to the superstition end of things. So there might be more of a call for exorcisms in the old world versus versus the new world as well. It's definitely it's definitely been more mainstream there for longer, whereas yeah. something that kind of lives under the rug here. Yeah. So some, just a couple of other additional facts to kind of bring us uh, to the end here of this kind of section. Father Thomas did follow an actual practicing exorcist in Rome after this class. Um, you know, we've, we've talked about Father Carmine. And during their time together, Father Thomas witnessed approximately 80 exorcisms performed by Father Carmine. So again, speaking to that idea that this is maybe a little bit more common in, in the Italian culture. And Father Thomas did work in a funeral home as a teenager and actually went to the University of San Francisco to study mortuary science and was a practicing mortician until the age of 25 before he decided to become a priest. So there's obviously a lot of licenses taken in the film, but the mm-hmm. one thing that Father Thomas and even the Catholic Church has been very outspoken about being very true is how accurately the scenes of demonic possession and the practice of the rite of exorcism are portrayed in the film. So, yeah. first of all, going into this, I was genuinely surprised with how low this movie is rated among critics. Personally, I would have thought critics would have rated it very highly, whereas maybe Mm -hmm. audiences would have been disappointed because I would Mm -hmm. have expected critics to sort of catch on to and and really like see the the work that went into the subtlety of this movie. Yeah. You know, personally, I always remember this movie being terrifying and I really wanted to watch this with a more critical eye to see if I was misremembering it. And mm-hmm. and the answer is no. But I do think I have a bit more of a grasp on perhaps why others don't necessarily see it my way, mainly being that if you don't have a predisposed acceptance of this, then this movie does is going to play a little bit more flat. Um, You know, this movie is not your traditional spinning heads, pea soup spitting approach to possession, but that's for me exactly what makes it so terrifying, right? We've said it at nauseum. This movie is subtle. It's a subtle, slow burn that creeps up on you and claws at the back of your mind late at night, hours after you finished watching it. It lingers with you, only further building the fear as like you clutch your blankets in your bed and <laughs> pray that you haven't opened the door and become possessed yourself, right? Every creak I hear right now as we record this is <laughs> Filling me with dread. So there is an added element for me as a believer. And therefore, I find this movie absolutely terrifying. Where I don't really find the movie The Exorcist 
terrifying, mm-hmm. right? And that's mainly because the the wild, over-dramatized possession scenes just feel so over-the-top and unreal and are kind of easily dismissed as, as just mm-hmm. horror as opposed to something more haunting. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, I don't care what's happening, right? If, you're, if your head spins all the way around, you're not possessed anymore, right? Like, you're dead. So, you know, I I think if the classic jump scare, levitating, head spinning look at exorcisms is what you're looking for, you're probably going to shrug this one off as maybe a good performance by Hopkins, but not much else. And if you're like me, this one lingers in the core for a few days after. And like I just said, even right now, and the Uh fact that the core of it is so based in truth makes it even worse i give the right a seven and a half out of ten and i think it's absolutely terrifying i'm actually really proud of us um that we made it this far into the episode without mentioning pea soup and spinning heads because (laughs) I, i knew it would have to show up sooner or later um because it was literally mentioned in everything that i read and listened to in researching this um They even mention it in this movie when Michael is like, that's it. And Anthony Hopkins literally says, what were you expecting? Spinning heads and pea soup? (laughs) Yep, exactly. Uh, It came up in every podcast that I listened to. You know, just I went back into some of the stuff I listened to and found their episodes on possession. Um, But it comes up every time. But ultimately, that is the Hollywoodization of possessions right that's what we have come to expect from a possession yeah um you know clear cut this person is possessed how can we make it look worse than that there is much more of a fine line to ultimately saying that somebody is possessed right like i mentioned before one in five thousand cases end up in an exorcism but that means that the rest of those end up in some other form of therapy or medication or possibly institutionalization. We see this in what we mentioned earlier, that there is a a panel of people, including doctors and psychologists that work to even determine if this is the appropriate route to take for this person's well-being. Right. That said, looking at, you know, Hollywood type stuff, one of the podcasts I was listening to earlier actually argued that if you take all of the, pea soup scenes out of the exorcist and just focus on the ritualistic part it actually is a really accurate depiction of the beginning to end ritual of exorcism Mm. it's all that stuff in between that kind of really throws you off so ultimately for the purpose of this movie and then by extension the book that it's based on um you have to walk that realistic line in order to really experience the power of faith here, right? We got to stay on that line to really go on Michael's journey. If we had that immediate, like, Oh, no, I believe now that last ending doesn't pay off that realization that you mentioned where he has that. Yes. I believe in, in ball. Yes. I believe in Satan. Therefore I must believe in Jesus and I must believe in God. I can't believe in these two without believing in that counter, which you lined out earlier outlined earlier is that, you know, like only God can defeat evil. Evil can't control evil. Right. So we have to stay on that fine line for, to make this story really work. But like you, I actually find this movie much more unsettling than something like The Exorcist with the way it comes out. It has enough of that realistic body horror without being over the top. Like you said, your head spins, you're dead. But there are some massive contortions and retching. And I think Father um, 
uh, Father Lucas has a scene where his arms are pulled back and you really think they're about to pop out of his socket when he snaps back, you know, like the demon yeah, kind of fades just out to of the him. brink, just to the brink. And it's just enough where you're like, again, we're on that line. Like, is this man doing this to himself? Is this is this something physical that can be um, uh, addressed in a medical way. It also has a few jump scares. There's one or two early on, um, but you also get the creepy voices and just the old world atmosphere of being set in Rome also makes it creepy. Yeah. The hospital is creepy. Oh. I, that hospital is horrifying. Father Lucas says his own home is, you know, I was like, oh, I was supposed to take care of this place, but I just haven't had the time. That place is creepy. When, uh, when Michael returns and all the crucifixes are upside down and like it is creepy like i don't care what you say that is creepy Mm -hmm. um and ultimately it's about unseen uncontrollable forces that attack you at your weakest and most vulnerable and exploit your existing fears and torment you know whether it's rosaria and her baby being the product of incest or um you know michael's issues with his father or uh, things like that They, they know your buttons to push when they say pushing buttons demons are pushing your exact buttons there's no guesswork there um and then again as as someone of faith with a background in the catholic tradition it feels really close to things that i've experienced again i've never experienced an exorcism but we're very familiar in the ritual of mass baptisms funerals whatever you know you and i specifically have experienced those firsthand we've been a part of those sacraments right and so this feels real to me and uh, it just that affects me so much more than a slasher film than you know a jason or uh, a scream or something like that this is real i've experienced elements of this and this is very much real but again, yeah, if you're expecting something insane, you're, you're going to feel like this doesn't pay off. The climactic scene is all out. It actually is. It gets to that crescendo where Michael accepts God and that's it. It's done. He defeats. And you get Anthony Hopkins, just that guttural screaming of the demon's name. And that's it. Everything is good at the end. And then Father Lucas is fine. And I'm like, oh, on your way, then we're great. And it's just so matter of fact. It's like back to America. But for me, it just it felt much more real and grounded to that. And it is absolutely sitting with me and watching you just be totally freaked out about that. Whatever is going on in your basement right now has totally got me freaked out. It just it does. It lingers with me. So I think all of this to say to say what our conclusion is, this answers the question of why this didn't do better. It's because it's not what people want in a, in a horror movie or a, a demon movie. But for me, it, it's, it's, it's spot on. And so I have to absolutely agree with you. I, I guess seven, 7.5 out of 10 for sure. Yeah. No and I think in terms of whether or not it's based on a true story, because that is kind of the other thing we wanted to look out here or to look mm-hmm. at here is for me, there's so many licenses, right? A yeah. lot of the details behind the characters and all that kind of stuff totally not true right if you really break it down the things that are true are a priest from america took an exorcism class in italy and met a reporter and followed an italian priest to go and watch some exorcisms and then came back and 
did exorcisms in the U.S. That is Mm -hmm. basically the extent of it. However, what it gets very accurately and very right, like we mentioned, is the right itself, is Mm -hmm. those moments and those those interactions with the demons and battling the demons and all that kind of stuff. And so therefore, that core being so grounded in truth, in the truth of that book, and by extension, the truth of the experiences of these priests upon which that book is based— it is definitely rooted in that in that fact. And so for me, I would say that it does hold up as genuinely being able to say that it is based on a true story because I think it genuinely is and that plays out accordingly. So definitely go into this one confidently and maybe not comfortably knowing that what you are about to see is the real deal and shouldn't be taken lightly and will also very much impact your viewing as to whether or not this is scary or not. There's actually in an interview of uh, someone asked father Thomas, if the actors and people involved in this movie participating in this movie open themselves up to possession. And his answer was simply possibly. And that alone just sort of is like, ah, just this you know even just telling it watch i was terrified to watch it i've been terrified to talk about it and i can't wait till we stop talking now because i want to run upstairs and and that is what this does and it should do and it should do because these are real real terrors this is a perfect example of exactly what you should be scared of um and not some guy running around in a hockey mask at least you have you got a standing shot against the hockey mask guy but again Definitely worth a watch. Absolutely terrifying for me and for Tim. If you're looking for the jump scares, you're not going to get them here. So maybe it's not for you. And a seven and a half out of 10 from us here at the Pause Reviews Podcast. And with that, I happily and wholeheartedly bring this episode to a close. Our next episode is a rewind where we are going to talk about stuff that is in the theme of Halloween and creepiness, yeah. but without being actual scary movies. And it's going to be really geared towards people who um, want to see some stuff, want to have fun with the holiday, but are not about scary movies. Perhaps next year, it's what me and Tim will make the entire month about. <laughs> so tune in next week for a rewind where we're going to talk about a couple of different things, do quick reviews and recommendations for stuff that you can watch if you don't dig scary movies, but still want to have fun with your friends who do. Other than that, you can hit us up anywhere, right? Instagram, pause reviews, you can hit us up on our website, pausereviews.com. Listen to the podcast wherever you get your podcast. You can shoot us emails, pause reviews at gmail.com. Whatever it is, wherever you need it, that's where we're at. Except social media, only on Instagram. So deal with it. Other than that, I think that about sums it up. Can we be done now? Yeah. Yeah, let's do it. Can I never think about these things again? Yeah, I need to go. Nope, this will haunt my dreams forever. Pray. Yeah, bro. You are telling me. All right, guys. As always, thank you so much for listening. And uh, we will catch you on the next one, hopefully. I'm your boy, Frank. This is Tim. God bless you. (laughs) We'll see you guys next week.